Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. This is our first episode after our one-year anniversary, Elias. How's that feel? Feels good, and I hope everyone watched the blooper reel, and I hope they really enjoyed it. I know I personally enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. My wife thought it was funny. It's hard to get a laugh out of her, especially when it's from me. So, so it's, it's good. I'll tell you what's actually funny is I rarely watch our entire show. I watched the bloopers like eight times. Hey, why? Because you just had that much fun watching it. It was or? fun. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's it's kind of fun because you know we were doing the show, and then you just kind of think back to those moments because you know you remember those moments. Except I didn't remember how many times I told Molly to take it out, and that can go in the bloopers. But it was it was really fun. Yeah, and I'm I was impressed with how many times I called myself stupid throughout the last year. So that was pretty good too. <laughs> Uh, maybe that can be your New Year's resolution next year to reduce yeah. the amount of times you call yeah. yourself. Yeah, Le- less negative self-talk. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was on Facebook this morning looking on my feed, and a couple of things I noticed, and Robert Kiyosakwa had posted, you know, this is going to be the largest meltdown of the stock market and the crypt- maybe the cryptocurrency market, too, in October. And coincidentally enough, I popped over to Bloomberg, and I started reading an article, and it's by uh, Funstrat's Tommy Lee, and it's and not to be confused with the singer, but his name's Tommy. Yeah, Lee. correct. I know who. Yeah, to, I know who the Tommy yeah, is. You're Tommy talking Lee. about yes. But uh, he made a comment. He said it's hard to be bearish on the stock market as risk happy millennials inherit two trillion dollars per year. And I started thinking about it. So we have all the people like, you know, we got Harry Dents of the world. We have Robert Kiyosaki's of the world who are predicting these market meltdowns. And when they look at their fundamentals, they probably believe that to be true. But what they're doing is discounting this massive amount of wealth transfer that's going from, you know, the baby boomers to the millennials. And think about, and it got me thinking about how people are allocating funds. If you're a... um if you're 75 years old, what's the percentage of money you have in the stock market? At 75, it's Maybe could be 50. very minimal. I mean, yeah. it depends. If you've done a financial plan, you've kind of figured out what that should be, but it's less than that of a 30-year-old, correct? Most uh, likely. Typically, yeah. So Most likely. 30-year-old inherits $2 million from mom and dad and their IRA that used to be 50% stock and 50% bonds. And now what are they going to do? Well, they're not going to own any bonds because bond yields are low. There's no money to be made in bonds. They're not interested in bonds, right? They're interested in technology and cryptocurrency. I mean, let's be honest. If you ask a millennial what they know about investing, they tell you Dogecoin. Right. And to go along with the point of Tom Lee's article and and what you're saying, there is other data that suggests, um, because he he used what the phrase... uh, an appetite for risk for younger people. Well, and there's also data that suggests that younger people are buying and holding their investments and, and uh, suggests that also investor behavior is getting better. So, you know, I understand where people are coming from when they talk about the fundamentals and valuations and, and you know, and maybe things used to kind of work more that way. But when you have a, an entire generation that is looking at inheriting money and they've already kind of shown that they're good being invested into stocks and they're showing that they're not selling in times of chaos. Um, you know, it's a good, you can make a good argument for what he's talking about. What's also interesting is last week at a conference, Kathy Wood, who runs the ARC funds, 
quoted, I do believe that crypto and equity markets are going to be powered by millennials. And she specifically cited the research by Tom Lee. So it, it just goes, makes me wonder, you know, there's visionaries in our industry who see things differently. And Kathy Woods has kind of been one of those people where she just looks at things differently, right? Her funds have performed really, really well, but maybe all the economists are just discounting all this money getting transferred from baby boomers to millennials and the power that it can actually, you know, really propel the market. In fact, Lee actually said there could be a bull market in 2038. Bull market until 2038. And he said this because he, uh, he pointed out in June that every stock market peak since 1900 had coincided with a generation's peak. So he believes that this could potentially go on until 2038. What do you think Harry Dent would say about that? <laughs> well, Harry Dent still he's still kicking the can down the road of incorrect predictions. He should be living in Puerto Rico by now. Yes, and he technically should have quit by now. In the spring, he said he was going to quit if he was wrong, and he was wrong again. But he didn't live up to his promise, so he didn't quit. And then, so Rob, okay, so in Robert Kiyosaki saying this. Um, Okay, so he says October, and whenever people put like a timeline, like Harry Dent does that a lot too. Well, it's going to be April. Okay, that didn't happen. It's going to be July. He's saying October. Like, what about like what about October? What is how do you how do you come to that, and how do you define that? That's the timeline of when this is going to happen. I got to tell you, the funniest part about that whole article is scrolling through the comments, and people are like, "This guy's been saying this for four years." If he keeps saying it long enough, he'll be right eventually. I mean, all the stuff we talked about is basically what the comments were. Um, but that kind of leads into the next really interesting article. I know this is popular last summer, Elias, um, during COVID. But did you watch Tiger King last summer? Absolutely. And I was late to the game. Like Everybody had watched this, and I was a little late to the game. But Molly forwarded me over this article. Joe Exotic now has his own new cryptocurrency hitting the market. So you know what my favorite part of this entire article was? I have no idea. So I'm reading through, and then it goes, not to mention 2022 is the Chinese year of the tiger. (laughs) And I'm like, that's the best reason to buy it right there. (laughs) So um, I don't know. So what what, this is what, to me, this is just a celebrity stunt. I'm sure sure Joe Exotic, he needs, he's been in prison. He's probably broke it seems like from the documentary he was always broke well, well this could be a good way for him to raise money for himself right now well here's you know he's actually potentially getting out so they went back and looked at this case and said that there was some error error in um how long they you know sentenced him for yeah so anyway the article talks a little bit about how people have gone post-prison to actually use their fandom to go bigger than they were before Right. Mm -hmm. And he's got a tell all book coming out. Um, And I don't remember who said this, but they were talking about the cryptocurrency itself. And all the traditionalists will be like, well, this isn't worth anything. It's a joke. It's a joke. But they quoted and said, that's not what it's about. It's about the masses and the popularity piling into the cryptocurrency, just like Dogecoin. Is that worth anything? Well, it's worth what people pay, but it has no utility. No different than this. It goes back to millennials powering the market and cryptocurrency. Things that we expect to happen may actually be different than we think just because people say, well, I want to own the dollar T-King coin, I think is what it is. Yeah. Um, 
but it's powered by millennials. It's not powered by the 55 year old pre-retiree going to go pile into this coin. It's literally powered by popularity. So that was really interesting. I thought it tied in with the whole millennials driving what's going to happen in the market and how maybe we all need to think a little bit differently about investing and the things around us versus just what's happened in the last 100 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, if you're going to invest, you should be a, you should be a long-term investor and shouldn't be trying to time the market anyway. Uh, and then to add on to what you're saying. So there was a guy in Amsterdam, he wrapped his Bugatti Chiron. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that it's like right. like a $2 million car. And he wrapped it in tiger stripes with the little dollar sign T King cryptocurrency logo. So, I mean, if that doesn't show support for Joe exotic and then in the article, he said, well, Joe really helped us all. Cause he was referring to like, that's when the pandemic started. He's, he said something about Joe exotic helped us all through a really tough time. So I just feel like I owe him one or something. So that was pretty entertaining <laughs> too. And he wrapped his $2 million vehicle in a tiger king cryptocurrency wrap well i think that's funny well it'd be interesting to see what happens with that coin and if joe's joe exotic actually gets out of prison early it's the craziest story i've ever seen i mean so are you gonna buy any no you're not gonna buy any t king crypto i'm not really that big of a fan no uh but the answer is no um did you get the email from mark so mark works in our office and he sent an email out from a long-term care company this is probably like a month ago and regarding the state of Washington in the state of Washington currently passed legislation that if you don't own a long, if you, if you don't own a long-term care policy, so you haven't taken taken um, ownership for your own long-term care policy, they're going to enact a payroll tax on you. I think it was like half a percent or something. It was small, but it was still a tax to cover long-term care in the state of Washington. Did you get that email? Yes. Yeah, I did. And then, um, yeah, I guess my initial reaction was, well, if one state's going to do it, it might start coming down the pike for other states. Well, and, and I think it has. I think maybe Minnesota, Michigan, Illinois, they all have something similar. Maybe California. I'll have to go back and look. But other states have passed something similar trying to eliminate the burden of the long-term care for people or extended care for people um, from the state and put it more onto the taxpayers. But what's interesting is recently, you know, Congress is working on this three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And they're trying to take a look at a lot of senior care issues. And this is one of them um, that they want to do. They want to find a way to help offset that cost of long-term care. It's actually called the public long-term care insurance. Um, it was put out by Tom Suozzi, the New York Democrat. Uh, he proposed a catastrophic long-term care insurance bill earlier this year, funded by a small payroll tax. So something similar to probably the Medicare tax to fund long-term care, which I started thinking about it. And I mean, I guess there's parts of me that say it's a problem, but the problem is people have never dealt with it. And what I mean by that is people look at long-term care and most people say it won't happen to me. Right. And so this is a good, this article is also a good reminder of when you're looking at your financial planning situation, 
So planning for a long-term care stay should be at least something you consider and think about how you're going to manage that. And this is, this is a good example of where there's, you know, there's insurance products that do fit into your financial picture. And maybe some of those would be a solution for you, whether it's a traditional long-term care plan or some sort of, there's some companies that do these hybrid, like permanent life insurance that also have long-term care benefits. But it's definitely something that shouldn't go ignored. You shouldn't just ignore it and think, well, this will never happen. It should be something you should look at. And when we're talking insurance, we're talking more about risk and how are we going to transfer that risk from myself to the insurance company. Um, but it's definitely a conversation people should be having with their financial plan or their advisor, whoever they're working with. Well, one thing I know we talk to people about is that there's really four ways to deal with long-term care. And they're pretty simple. The first way to deal with it is ignore the problem. And quite frankly, frankly, that's what a lot of people do. They just, that ah, won't happen to me. I won't worry about it. I won't know what's going on. You're right. You probably won't. Two is you go on Title 19, which for a lot of people, that's a very reasonable way to do it. And this is what this bill specifically is trying to, you know, let, jump onto is, hey, how do we help this Title 19 where people just run out of money and we're going to the state's care? But for a lot of people, that's the most cost-effective way because the price of long-term care insurance has just priced out most people out of the market of buying this. So way two is Title 19. Three is you could be self-insured. And really the only way to figure that out is you got to do a financial plan. The financial plan will quantify what your risk is, how much you know coverage you need from an insurer, whether it's some or none. Um, and help you quantify the decision-making process versus just guessing and winging it. And the fourth way, like you mentioned, is transferring the insurance or transferring the risk to an insurance company. Now, what's interesting is if you sit down with a insurance person, and I'm not being negative to insurance people, but if you sit down with a long-term care insurance guy, what are they going to do? Well, long-term care costs 85000 a year. The average stay is three years. You know, we'll have a 90 day elimination period. We better have inflation on this thing. And they're going to try to sell you the Cadillac policy, right? Because they're not taking into account any part of your financial picture. Just, yep, you need long-term care insurance and we have to pay for the entire stay. When in reality, most people could pay for part of the bill on their own and supplement or fill a gap with the insurance portion. And it becomes much more cost effective. And it's why we like to use a financial plan to quantify what that risk is versus that of we have to pay for all of it because we don't. It, paying for all your long-term care insurance would be like your kids going to Harvard on a scholarship, like a half ride scholarship, <laughs> but you still think you need to pay for the whole thing. You don't, you need to pay for the other half. You don't need to pay for the, for the whole college experience. So, um, I just thought that was interesting how it tied into this article and this this enhanced elder care bill. There's a lot of other things in it um, there. And this is really important for retirees or people who are on Medicaid. There's going to be the option in 2022. They're going to add vision ben benefits to Medicare because there's three benefits that Medicare doesn't cover right now. Hearing, vision, dental. And truth be told, if you look around at most retirees, they have other stuff going on, but their biggest bills are hearing and dental. Yeah. You know, I know my grandma, she's had how many trips to the to the hearing aid place. Most seniors, I mean, 
your teeth don't get any better as you get older and teeth procedures are really, really expensive. Very expensive. Um, yeah. So they're going to add vision benefits in 2022, hearing benefits in 23. And it says the most cautious initiative would be dental, but that would not begin until 2028. So those are important benefits, Elias, that are going to help retirees with some of the major expenses that aren't covered. Um, they're going to tackle drug drug care prices. That's part of this. Um, they're pushing for plans to allow Medicare to negotiate prices directly with the pharmaceutical managers. I've got a neighbor who's a pharmacist, and he was telling me about how this whole world works and just seems so complicated, the, the pharmacy... Medicare, drug world, how complicated it is for everybody. It probably is complicated because there's probably several people getting a little sliver of the pie every time. Yeah, I, I think things become complicated when politicians are massively involved. So Elias, along with aging of the American population, you know, I've been doing this for 19 years and I started on the insurance side and when I started, we always tell people, well, you know, life expectancy is getting longer. People are living longer. That's why the premiums are the same as they were 10 years ago. And when I started doing financial planning a few years into my career, we used age 82 as kind of the year in which, you know, life expectancy was. Now we're out to 92 for males, 94 for females. Well, I read an article this morning on Bloomberg. U.S. men's life expectancy falls by 2.2 years. 2.2 years for men, not for women, but for men due to coronavirus. So I started thinking about that. And are, are the models that we use long term going to reflect a reduced life expectancy? Are we just going to treat this as, hey, this is a blip. It's probably not a long term trend. I don't know. I just got started thinking about that when I read this. And I was shocked. 2.2 years only for men. And that was the highest of the 29 um, countries, uh, the 29 nations in the study of the pandemic. That was the longest. Only Denmark and Norway avoided drops in their life expectancy. And is this and this is the first time life expectancy has gone down in what, a really long time? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to guess in a really long time. And it's 2.2 years, which is significant I mean, we think about from a financial planning 5%? standpoint that is very significant um i don't know that's a good question i, don't I guess think... for the time being i feel like it's maybe not enough to change the way we change the way we do it but if that continues then absolutely we'd have to make a change to our the way we're planning yeah i mean i'm not going to change anything right now because but maybe it's a trend i mean right this is still here it's not going away um, it'll be really interesting. I just kind of thought it was something to mention. And the female life expectancy, is that staying the same? Remain, remain the same. But it's the first time in my 19 years I've ever seen where, hey, life expectancy actually got shorter yeah. and longer. I had a client in here the other day and they're leaving their job. And we were talking about her options. She goes, well, my 401k is free. And sure. it got me thinking about this article. And Forbes literally just had an article. Why do employees think they don't pay fees in their 401ks? People think the 401k plan is free. And guys, I'm here to tell you, it's not free. It's not necessarily expensive. And you know that we don't believe fees are the driving factor in most things. 
you know, I believe in general that 401k plans are really, really good for the employee, regardless of the fees, because they right. work. You know how many 401k plans have helped people become millionaires most in our country <laughs> and they charge a fee the whole time. No one should, no one should, no one should complain about the fee if it helps you build your wealth in an efficient way. It always gets me when I see, hey, there's a lawsuit against XYZ 401k company because they used their own funds. Well, why? If it helped people, why does it matter if the cost was 0.02% more? Like it shouldn't matter. All that should matter in financial planning and retirement are the outcomes, unless it was highly detrimental to the clients, which most of these aren't. But I think it's interesting. People don't think they pay fees. And let's talk about why they don't think they pay fees. They don't think they pay fees because they don't see them. Yeah, it's not it's not on the paycheck stub. It's not deducted and something that they can see easily. I'm sure you can find the fees if you really want to. Yeah, you'd have to. You can go to the the official documents have have listed what the plan administration fees are, what the um, investment fees are. There's a whole litany of fees in there and a lot of different layers of fees. It doesn't mean there are a lot, but there's layers of fees. The reason people don't pay attention, though, is because they honestly, they don't care because it works. How many people have had just a mutual fund with doesn't matter what company, if it returned 12% a year, why do you care what the fee is? Yeah. If you're getting matter. good returns and that of the fee, what, what does it, it doesn't matter to anybody. It's not just about good returns. It's about, are you able to meet your goals? If you're hitting your goals, then the fee is only relevant, relevant in absence of value. And what I mean by that is if you're paying a fee, but you're underperforming all of the peers or you're paying an investment manager and you're not hitting the goals that you set forth to do, well, then the fee matters goes back to that uh, the hedge fund we talked about that had an enormous fee but netted 33 some percent a year like who cares I'll take I'll take that fee all day to make 33 percent yeah I, and I think another probably thing w worth mentioning is that some of the fees related to this are administrative because someone's doing all the paperwork and documentation of the 401k and there there are investment fees and it's and what you just said, if there's no value, well, just so people understand the value there and the investment fees that you're paying is you're getting professional money management. You might not know who that manager is of the mutual funds that you're picking in your 401k, but that's how they're being compensated for their work. And they typically, they're going to have a portfolio manager. They're going to have a team of people doing research for them. So there's a lot of value there. You're just never you're probably never going to like, it's not a tangible value. You're never really going to see it, but there's absolutely work being done to make sure um, that when you're buying a mutual fund that they're hitting uh, the goals and the things that they set out to do for the clients that enter into their fund. The one thing I always remind people that you're paying the fees, people assume that the company's paying the fees or something, the, the individual's paying the fees. And we run into this a lot because we work as, a lot of times as a level fee fiduciary. You know, meaning charge a fee for service. Well, the fee that comes out of the client's account shows up on every statement. So, hey, what's that for? Right? You have that discussion. You never have that discussion of 401k, even though it could be the exact same fee. You just don't ever get into that world of discussion of 401k plan. But I thought it was interesting because we just had this discussion where someone thought they weren't paying anything. It's not a bad thing if you're paying something. 
You just should understand what those fees are and helps you make a good decision or choice as to what you can do in the future. This is the one thing I've never seen a 401k plan do. That's a financial plan for somebody. You know, they'll have no, some software right. on there that says, well, you could have X amount of income. Well, there's no planning. There's no personalization. There's really no thought that's been put into that other than just a little quick computer program based upon your age and the amount of money that you have invested in the account. Correct. And those are always just based on the available information, which would be the 401k. The the 401k software typically doesn't know everything about your financial situation. So it's lacking a lot of data too when it gives like, because you've seen them where they give a little score of how you're doing or a grade, you could call it. So there's something cool at the end of this Molly put together and I don't know. I think you guys got me into this, but I've been watching TikTok way more than I should. It's like this rabbit hole that once you click, it just, keeps, fault. it just keeps feeding you more and more. And the next thing you know, it's like an hour later and you're still watching these videos that are 60 mm -hmm. seconds long. And it's funny, but we ran across this one called the seven sins of investing. And let's do this because these are pretty good. I actually haven't watched all of them. I watched the first couple, but let's go do this and react to what we think about the information being given by the seven sins of investing. The seven sins of investing. Sin number one is holding cash in a retirement account. For example, if you contribute to a Roth IRA and you haven't yet invested that cash, that money is just sitting there doing nothing, not growing. Look for things like core or money market or cash or settlement account. If you see money in any of those places, that money is not invested at all. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Make sure to take that money and invest it into something like an index fund. Okay, so the first one's holding cash in a retirement account. And I understand what he's saying here. But what I like to look at is what's the percentage of cash in the retirement account? Okay. Mm -hmm. If you have 50% cash in your retirement account, yeah, not good. If it's 1%, that's reasonable. It helps facilitate trades, provide some liquidity if there's markets that go up and down. So I don't believe that you should have just no cash, but you should have a very small amount of cash unless you're in the decumulation stage of retirement. Right. Correct. If you're an accumulator, so you're not retired, one or two percent of cash max is probably what you should have. But if you're retired, you should have a decumulation strategy put in place that you might have a year or two years worth of cash. So in general, I think this is great advice, but it goes back to your specific situation. Think of a retiree in 2008 who had no cash in their retirement account because they listened to TikTok. And now, the, and they need, let's say they need $5,000 a month from the account to live on. Now the market goes down 57%, top to bottom. And then guess how they get the 5,000? They have to sell. Yeah, you have to sell and lock in a loss. You got it. So in general, this is a good piece of advice, but you need it to be specific to your situation. But if you're 30 and you have 25,000 in a Roth IRA and 20,000 is in cash, that's probably a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. Your yeah, your long your long term returns on cash are just not near what they can be. And if you're thirty, don't tell me you're trying to time the market. Like, just yeah, invest the money. Don't foolish. try to time the market. Right. Don't wait because yeah. that's what you'll hear. Well, I'm waiting for the market to go down. Well, what if it goes up twenty percent from here, and then it goes down twenty percent? Well, you're just in the same spot anyway. Like, just put the money into the market if you're yeah. if you're young. Put the money to work right away.
So number two is picking individual stocks. Now I know everyone loves picking their stocks. Here's why you should avoid it. Because it involves additional risk, it involves human error, and when you're, ex when you're accepting additional risk, you should expect outperformance, but picking individual stocks is likely to underperform the stock market. If you do wanna play with individual stocks, I propose you do this. With 90% of your portfolio, you buy and hold index funds to guarantee yourself your fair share of all market growth. And with the other 10%, pick individual stocks and see if you really are as good as you think you are. I like how I finished that one. See if you are as good as you think you are. <laughs> it, it's the truth. It, so I believe in this, right? We don't particularly believe in people buying individual stocks because we've shown over time, most people can't outperform an index or a fund manager. And I want people to critically think about this if you are picking individual stocks. So you go to work all day as an engineer and you come home at five o'clock. How much time are you researching individual stocks? Let's just be real. An hour a day? Not as long as a portfolio manager. There you go. Or a research analyst. Let's think about it. I want people, people that are listening, think about it. Be smart. If there's a mutual fund company out there that has how many portfolio analysts studying individual companies all day long, why do you think you can do it better than them? You can't. You might get lucky. People get lucky. But if you add it up over time, you're not going to do better than them. Yes, it's fun. So here's my rule for individual stocks. I own a few individual stocks. They're things that I use every day or my wife uses every day. Yeah. Because I feel better about giving my money away to those places. Knowing that I own a tiny little sliver of it. <laughs> That's the truth. And it's a small portion of my portfolio. Um, and he says 10%. Well, it's, it's similar to what we've told people about cryptocurrency. Okay, great. If you want to own it, one or 2%. Is it going to really have an impact on your retirement? Probably not. But if it's fun for you, fine. It's your speculation money. But so I think it's good advice buying ETFs, mutual funds, whatever the product is. Um, and then, you know, if you want to do individual stocks, just you know, portioning out a small percent. So I actually think this is pretty good. Pretty yeah, good advice. it is. And the and just to add on, when you do buy an individual stock and you have some success, don't be scared to attribute that to luck. Like you said, you can get lucky. Because, um, I, you know, I've heard countless stories. People like telling me the stories of a stock that they bought and then it did great. Um, but that's... You know, anybody can get lucky. Anybody can hit a home run at any time. Here's what it's like. Two things. It's like the casino. My wife's uncle loves to gamble. He's never lost. He's like even on his career, right, or something. Even when he wins, he loses. Seriously. Yeah. So, hey, I won 1200 on the slot machine last night. Really? How much did you put in? I don't know. I had went home with 1200 well, you didn't win 1200 then you probably put four or 500 in and maybe you hit a jackpot for 1200, but you still put the 500 in. Yeah. I've never met a person who's won that actually accounts for what they put in. Oh, yeah. I won 1200. Well, if you put a thousand in, like, yeah, you won 200, you won 200. Point. They right. never do that. And they never tell you about when they lose. So obviously with the rise of, um, Online gambling. I've got all these friends who are placing like 10 and $25 bets on sporting events. I've never done it before. One of my neighbors, oh, I did this parlay for 25 bucks. And I only hear about when they win. 
there's no way they're winning. They're not beating the. You're not beating the odds makers. Yeah, like, if gamblers not, won as much as they say they do, the casinos would not be in business, right? They, yeah. You know, you know what? They wouldn't knock them down and build new ones. It'd be like an old, rundown, tattery building. They knock these things down like every eight years. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is a good point, Elias. Attribute that to luck. Number three is chasing past performance. The fund or stock that did the best last year is very unlikely to be the fund or stock that does the best next year. When you're chasing past performance, all you're doing is buying at a very high price and likely to underperform the market going forward. So what should you do? Buy an index fund and leave it alone for decades. It's actually a good one. This yeah. happens in very, 401. Yeah, very four, common mistake, right? 401ks all the time. Yep. Well, I want to buy that one because it did the best last year. And we use this thing called the Callan chart. And it shows the returns of each asset class over like the last 10 years. And which one is one? Very rarely do you see the same one at the top of the returns. Back-to-back -back years. And I don't even know if there's ever on that chart one that's three years in a row. It's yeah, so, it doesn't happen like for a sustained period of time when it does happen. Yeah, he talks about just buying an index fund, which that is fine. But we would tell people get an asset allocation and stick to the asset allocation through a financial plan and get this custom and tailored really for you to make sure you get the optimal outcome for yourself. That's the same thing. And we talk to clients a lot about relative return, which is exactly what he said. We want to get your fair share of the market gains. Well, it's the same thing with an asset allocation. If you've got a portfolio that's 70% stock and 30% bonds, you're looking to get a relative return of about 70% of what the stock market get, stock market did. Could be a little more, could be a little less, depending upon what asset classes are owned in there. But look for relative return. So in general, I think that's actually a pretty good pretty good piece of advice yeah yeah i agree and the, so the other thing i hear that references this is uh like someone will be looking at their 401k and they'll say something like oh well they'll look at the past performance oh well i'm getting 15 percent in my 401k no you're not getting that they're showing you what has happened in the past and they're not making any sort of prediction of what's going to happen in the future so just know when you make those selections and you're looking at past performance that's not that's not what you're going to get. You very well could have that outcome, but um, it's not a guarantee or anything like that. Number four is timing the market. Don't do these things, jumping in and out of the market, trying to avoid crashes or get in at the right time. Change strategies based on what the market is doing. Doing these things will mean you are very likely to underperform the stock market. Instead, do these things. Ignore the noise. Buy and hold index funds. Invest early and often and leave it alone for decades easiest great thing to advice. say here great advice successful investors don't act that way nope they don't try and time the market we know that we've talked about this in multiple episodes time the market does not work get your money in be invested all the time if you try to time the market you're likely to lose out on the gains because nobody can do this yep and making portfolio decisions well, I read an article that said the market's going to go down in October, like we talked about earlier. Um, that is not a good way to make decisions for your portfolio. The number five is paying high fees. Here's a look at investing $500 per month in the U.S. stock market over the last 40 years. If you invested in a low fee index fund over those 40 years, your $500 a month would have grown to $3.1 million. 
But if instead you were investing with a 2% annual fee, your final value would drop to only $1.6 million. That's almost half of your final value lost to that fee. Okay, we talked about this earlier. Fees are relevant only from a net result standpoint. So here's my problem with this video. He skewed this to his narrative. In general, we use a lot of low cost stuff in our portfolios, but the fee's not gonna drive your success. Having the financial plan and the right investments will drive your financial success. He assumed the exact same investment, but added 2% in fees. Number one, two, I don't know many managers out there charging 2%. Yeah, that's a high. That's I mean, pretty high. That's like you own a fine, you know, you own an insurance product if you're paying two percent, probably. Most right? likely, yeah. most likely. Um, two, if you're paying two percent in fees, something else is coming there. It's not the exact same investment at the market. I can go look at ETFs and technology. So there's some technology ETFs that are more expensive than an S and P 500. But if I look at the last 15 year return, guess who's better? The the net so this isn't a fair comparison. He's just stripping out 2% in fees for the exact same investment, which there are active managers out there who do that. It's called closet indexing, right? We'll look like we're an active portfolio manager when really we're just buying the index. So that's where if you have a good investment advisor, they can help you navigate those. But you know, I, if you're paying 2% in fees and you're getting less than the market returns, then yeah, you might have a problem. You have to quantify what's being provided for you. But this isn't, um, I don't think this is actually that great of a comparison because he assumes that, let's just say you own the S&P 500 for free and then you own the S&P 500 for 2% more in fees. Well, that's not reality. You're not bought, there's no investment that just charges 2% to own the S&P 500 unless it's in some type of an insurance product. Couldn't have said it better myself. So number six is thinking short term. For example, this emoji is thinking, how do I double my money by next weekend? But I got bad news for you, emoji guy. That's a recipe for staying broke. Investing is a long-term game. To build wealth, think in terms of five years, 10 years, 20 years, and beyond. Follow me for sin number seven, the deadliest sin of them all. Yeah, so that's that's good advice right there. That's If you are investing, you should be invested for the long-term, short-term gains. And, and uh, speculation, to me, that's not investing. Speculating is more like gambling, where investing is saying, I think this investment, mutual fund, ETF, whatever it is you choose to do, um, you're deciding that buying this over a long period of time and holding it over a long period of time is going to build my wealth. And if that's your mindset and that's what you're doing, then I think all the data shows and all the research shows over the years that you will be successful doing that. I think that's great advice. So the key word there is your retirement dollars. If you're trying to get rich quick, you want to do this short term, get rich quick scheme, which probably isn't going to work. You're going to go broke. Make sure it's with your gambling money. Yeah. Right? You, you hit it on the head. That's not investing. If you're trying to double your money over the weekend, it's just, it's not, it's purely speculation. I have a friend like this. He calls me up all the time trying to find the next hot thing. I'm like, how about you just start maxing out your Roth IRA? That's a Let's hot, that, that's a hot take. Let's start there. Yeah. But it's always about the next cryptocurrency or how do I get in on this company? I'm like, start maxing out your Roth IRA. Let's start there. Simple, simple things to be highly successful. This is supposed to be the most deadly sin of all. So I'm really interested to see what this one is, Elias. 
Number seven. What's your guess? What do you think this is going to be? I think the most deadly sin of all is going to be not getting started saving. That's what I think. Missing out on compound interest. I don't know. What do you think? I haven't watched this, so I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, I actually, I'm just, I'm gonna hitch on along with you. That's a good one, and I'm trying to think of the stuff he hasn't mentioned. But I think of all the stuff he hasn't mentioned, he hasn't mentioned just getting started. This has to be it. I bet. I, yeah, it's probably not investing at all. Yeah, let's good, see. That's probably a good guess. The seven sins of investing. Here we are, sin number seven, the deadliest sin of them all: not investing early and often. Here's a little story. Ashley invests five hundred dollars per month for forty years. Amanda invests $500 per year for 10 years. Ashley ends up with $1.1 million, whereas Amanda only ends up with $6,900. It's a massive difference. Remember, even if you get the other six sins wrong, always invest early and often. Well, we won. We, called, we both called it. We knew that was coming, and it is the most deadly sin. We How many times have we sat down with clients who've been clients for you know, 5, 10, 15 years, however long? And now they want to show their kids who are 17, 18, 19, the power of investing. We just go back and pull a hypothetical of the S&P 500, put a hundred or $200 a month in. And the amount of money it accumulates to by the time they're at retirement age is massive. But if they wait till they're 40, they miss out on the greatest, the greatest thing ever invented compound interest. Right. And if you are young enough and I can't remember the age off the top of my head and and the return you would need over the long term. But it can really be as simple. If you're like 18, 19, or 20, it can be as easy as $100 a month into a good mutual fund or a good ETF or even just S&P 500 like this guy's talking about. And you would be amazed at the result you're going to have over 40 years. I'm with you. I, I think this is hopefully young people are watching this and they do get started. With that said... This has been a great show, Elias. I appreciate you having it on. This is the first show after our one-year anniversary. And there's only, there's one more really exciting thing happening for us in the world. Okay, what's that? The, the Hawks, Hawks are, are number five in the country, and they're 4-0. Yeah, and so you know, I'm still not sure how they got ranked fifth. But, but, but hold on. Right. So if you think back, back to all of our teams that we've ever had that are good, and I'm not sure we're really good. I know we have a great defense. Our offense, who knows? But you think back to the – the years in which we thought we had a great team, right? And what what happened in like the first four games? We always lost one, yeah, to somebody we shouldn't. And this year, we've taken care of business with all the teams that we were supposed to beat, and we actually beat the Cyclones, who were we were what six and a half point underdogs in that game, four and a half point underdogs. Yeah. So that's exciting for me. So it's yeah, it's I I agree with you there because to that point. The really good teams that they've had with Coach Ferentz are teams that it's maybe not pretty to get there, but they do end up taking care of business by the end of the game. I listened to one of the announcers before the game against um, – who did we just play? Kent State? Uh, Colorado, Colorado State Colorado was State. Saturday. Colorado State we played. And they said, here's the deal. This Hawkeye team, they're in every game. And you're right. We'll stay in every game with the really good schools, and we'll stay in every game with the schools. We're That's the life to. of the Hawkeyes. We're like twenty four right point twenty four point uh, favorites, and what was it? We were losing at halftime, which I wasn't too concerned. I just knew our we just beat them up in the second half. But um, that's exciting. So were you listening to um, Gary Dolphin and Ed Podolak, or who were you listening to? Yeah, I was um, I was listening to it. We went to Bass Farms during the game. We took the girls out there, so I actually didn't watch the game. Um, I listened to it 
while we took hay rack rides and jumped in bouncy tents and did all that fun, fun stuff. But I figure if we can't take get, take care of business against these guys, it's probably not worth watching anyway. Go so Hawks. That's why I'm wearing the Hawk shirt. So with that said, go Hawk guys. Let's go for 5-0 and this week against Maryland. If you want a financial plan, go to btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.